Trauma Therapist Podcast, episode 426. Welcome to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson. My mission is to raise awareness of trauma and to help support and inspire new trauma workers through this podcast and my membership community, Trauma Therapist 2.0. Thanks so much for joining me today, and here we go. All right, guys, I want to welcome back Talkspace as a sponsor to the podcast. You know, we all have something we want to change about ourselves, whether it's spending too much time on social media or wanting to start a new hobby. But if you're like me, like most people, taking action can feel almost impossible without the right support. Talkspace Online Therapy is the most convenient and affordable way to make lasting change in your life with the support of a licensed therapist. Send your licensed therapist text, audio, picture, or video messages from your phone or computer whenever you need to, even if it's on the way to work. You don't have to make appointments or deal with extra commutes. Everything happens within Talkspace's secure platform all on your schedule. Talkspace matches you with a licensed therapist based on your needs and preferences. They have thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties. So if you have something very specific you want to work on, they will find someone right for you. Once you're matched, you can begin therapy that very same day. The bottom line is that life can be hard, and Talkspace wants to make sure more of us get the support we need at a price we can afford. As a listener of this podcast, you can get $100 off your first month on Talkspace. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code TRAUMATHERAPIST to get $100 off your first month and show your support for this podcast. Once again, go to Talkspace.com and use the code TRAUMATHERAPIST. Trauma may be a fact of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. Somatic experiencing is a psychobiological method of addressing clients' physical and emotional trauma conditions and helps to give voice to their experiences without a need for them to retell their story. SE is a complementary modality that focuses on regulation of the nervous system and offers the opportunity to engage, complete, and resolve the body's instinctual responses to traumatic experiences. For more information regarding somatic experiencing and the SE professional training program, please visit www.traumahealing.org. That's www.traumahealing.org. All right, guys, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. I am very happy and uh, excited slash honored to have Dr. Sam Himmelstein back on the podcast. Welcome, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. All right. So Dr. Himmelstein is a youth worker, author, speaker, and licensed psychologist in the state of California. Most of his work has revolved around working with trauma-impacted, juvenile, justice-involved, substance-using youth. He's the founder and CEO of the Center for Adolescent Studies, a multidisciplinary training institute that teaches youth professionals how to build authentic relationships, practice trauma-informed care, and share mindfulness with the young people. Sam is a formerly incarcerated youth and was privileged to change from a path of drugs, violence, crime, and self-destruction to that of healing and transformation. He's written three books, the most recent being Trauma-Informed Mindfulness with Teens, A Guide for Mental Health Professionals, uh, Publishing Machine, dude. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor right, to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about your book, um, your third book, my God. Um, so you were back on 
uh, episode 95 of the podcast. A lot obviously has happened since then, but let's uh, kind of in a, in a kind of compact way, bring people up to speed first with uh, uh, letting people know where you're from originally and where you're located now. Absolutely. Uh, born and raised in Berkeley, California, and uh, I've been in Oakland, California, right next door for the better part of my adult life for the last 10 years. Yeah. Okay. okay. And you started uh, the Center for uh, Adolescent Mindfulness. When was that? The Center for Adolescent Studies. Technically, I started... Um, around 2015, 2016, but I was still working full time in my clinical jobs. And uh, after a couple of years of just kind of ramping up with speaking engagements and other types of trainings, then I was able to kind of take it full time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And just, just Sam, just reading through your bio, I mean, you were, I know we touched upon this uh, when we spoke initially in the, in the first mm-hmm. episode, but you're your background, I mean, it, it, it reads kind of like, you know, some, I don't it's kind of cliche to say it, but it's like from this, from this crazy background, intense background to one of transformation and healing. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you, what do you say to that? I mean, yeah. how does something like that happen? Well, I think there's a, a few different factors, and it's a really great question, something I've really reflected on for the better part of my adult life. I mean, for me, one of the things that I think was a little bit of luck was I got in all of that trouble and was in and out of juvenile hall and in these group homes at an extremely young age. Um, this, of course, you know, totally freaked out my parents to have a 12, 13, 14 year old doing drugs, going in and out of jail. Um, but in a, in a, in a way the silver lining was I was really privileged and lucky enough to turn it around, uh, by my freshman year in high school. And a lot of the young people that I've worked with at the high school age, when they kind of go through their troubles, one of the main things that's really hard to get back on track with is just school. You know, that's one of the main things we have to do and when you're in high school and you've had a really tough 10th and 11th or 12th grade that that really limits your options for what's after high school so part of it was just like the luck and the privilege of being able to to go through that journey at a very young age part of it of course was having uh, uh, parents in my household who never gave up on me and uh, uh, you know the other significant part was the relationships that I was lucky enough to to have as I traversed through that, the mentors, the therapists, the teachers and educators who really took an interest in me and wanted to help me better myself. And and that mm-hmm. ultimately helped me, you know, plant the seeds to be able to start that transformation and go on, finish high school, go to college, go to go to grad school and kind of the rest is history from there. Yeah. I mean, all those factors obviously are, are those like curative healing factors that protective factors that people point to when, you know, that help people recover from trauma. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. So the first book you wrote the first book and let's kind of touch just briefly snapshot. Why did you write that one? And let's kind of dive into the second one here. So I'm kind of curious about the arc. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's a great question. So the first book was really 
you know, I got into this work of working with incarcerated youth because obviously I was touched by the system and was privileged enough to, to transform through and get out of that. And I wanted to give back. And so early on in my graduate school studies, I focused all of my energy on working with that population. And I just found that there was really nothing out there. There were no resources. Uh, the, you know, there were some books on like essentially how to work with this population, but nothing that really checked off the box for me on like, how do I actually do this? Like clinically, like, you know, the, the kind of the, the volley of the to and fro of actually how to do therapy with young people, particularly from these trauma impacted backgrounds. And so that was really the impetus to write that first book. My first book, uh, a mindfulness based approach to working with high risk adolescents. It's really one big clinical vignette. And so there's a lot of like, you know, the therapist says this and then the client says that and the therapist says this. And really, I felt like I wanted to make this contribution of like the the granular details on at least one impactful way to do psychotherapy with that population. And I got a lot of really good feedback on it. And the feedback was, I really liked how you broke it down of the therapist said that and the client said that because it gives you a little bit of a blueprint to do it. Um, And then from there, another thing I was doing at the same time, uh, my second book, uh, which is called Mindfulness-Based Substance Abuse Treatment with Adolescents, a 12 session curriculum, at the same time I was doing that, I was working at, at a juvenile detention camp at the time, uh, running the court-mandated substance abuse program. So everybody who went through this juvenile detention camp had to at least have a number of programs that they went through, and one of them was a court-mandated substance abuse program. Very similar situation. I, I really did a lot of deep research couldn't find anything that that felt valuable for this very specific population, trauma-impacted youth, dealing with incarceration, dealing with community violence, dealing with another, a, a number of other issues. So me and a partner, Stephen Saul, who I co-authored that book with, we essentially developed this program. We did a whole bunch of years of process research where we just, you know, made little tweaks to the curriculum, mm-hmm. got got kind of seeds and gems from other curricula that we thought were worthwhile, made little tweaks to them. Um, And then after a while, started doing outcome research, and we published a number of studies on the curriculum itself, which was a 12-session curriculum. And now, one, one of the main things I do at the Center for Adolescent Studies is I go around the country and essentially train people how to do that curriculum who work with high risk and incarcerated and other types of youth populations. Uh, when you say, excuse me for interrupting, when you say people, do you mean therapists, counselors, anyone or what? It, it's mainly it's mainly therapists and counselors, okay. although there are some ways, there are some uh, um, uh, providers, I guess you could say, that are not licensed clinicians. So, for example, in some juvenile correctional centers, it, they, you know, they just have limited resources, so they'll have what's called a juvenile counselor who provides the services there, and they're mainly doing the frontline groups and one-on-one and family work. And so essentially they're counselors, but they don't have an advanced degree in mental health. And so um, those types of providers can get trained as well. Um, also, of course, KDAC and kind of like the substance abuse professionals as well. Mm-hmm. 
those are a lot of the folks that go through those trainings. And so I'll go around and I, and I, and I train people in that so that they can implement it into their programming and, um, you know, essentially help youth from a mindfulness-based perspective. And of course, because of the research, it's gotten some notoriety. We were able to get it on the uh, the National Registry of Evidence-Based Practices before that got shut down by the government. And essentially, um, you know, it, so anyways, that second book is really more of like, whereas the first one's kind of like a clinical vignette, the second one is like this 12-session curriculum, and people buy it, they pick it up, they either do the whole curriculum from A to Z, or they take tidbits of it and, and, and implement it into their existing curriculum. Okay. And um, going from that, which was published in 2015, to this current project, the third book, Trauma-Informed Mindfulness with Teens, um, you know, I, the reason why I wanted to develop an expertise in working with trauma-impacted youth or, or working with trauma is just because I was so passionate about working with this population with juvenile justice-involved youth, and it was just so clear that one of the main things that was coming up for this population was layers and layers of trauma, PTSD, complex, intergenerational trauma, and I, I remember thinking to myself at a very young you know, age, career-wise, that if I'm going to be effective in working with this population, I need to not just become competent in trauma-informed care, but really become competent in trauma-specific treatment interventions mm-hmm. for this population. And I was already at that point really passionate about mindfulness, both because my own personal path, that's one of the other things that kind of helped me transform Uh, my own personal path, but also I had been working for uh, the Mind Body Awareness Project, which was a a nonprofit that taught, you know, meditation type interventions to incarcerated youth. And I was able to do my dissertation through them. So I was already seeing the the power of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation and, and contemplative awareness practices with this population. And I really, this project is really a merging of those two things with the notoriety that mindfulness has gotten over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and the kind of commodification of it and the kind of like silver bullet intervention, you know, kind of mystique that it sometimes gets. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to create a project in a manuscript that does justice to how to actually teach mindfulness from a trauma informed lens so that you're not actually re-traumatizing youth or teaching mindfulness and thinking that it's some silver bullet intervention, mm-hmm. but doing it from a relational standpoint, a very grounded standpoint. And when you do that, um, that's when you can get a lot of the juice from the practice and a lot of the, the, the transformative aspects of it. It comes through that relationship. And so essentially that's what this book is. It's closer to the first book in, sense, in the sense that there's a lot of clinical vignettes in it, but I also have a chapter in there where I talk about some very specific mindfulness curricula and trauma-informed mindfulness curricula as well. Whereas if you're like a, a clinician or an educator or a substance abuse professional, and you are in, are in, and you run groups like many people who work with youth do, just for economic reasons. Um, and you're looking for some curricula. There is a chapter in there where I talk about not, not all of the curricula I use, mm-hmm. but um, kind of some of the four or five of the main mini modules, as I call them, that you can either exist that you can either incorporate into an individual session, obviously a group session, and even a family session as well. Um, so that's that's really where the impetus came from, and I I'm really 
happy with how it came out. And um, I'm just so grateful to be in this field and to have been fortunate enough to um, build some of these relationships with clients who have let me into their lives because Mm -hmm. the clients have been, you know, the medium through which I do this work and through from them transforming that's transformed me. And it's been a, it's, it's enabled me to create this book, which hopefully will, you know, impact other clinicians and and trauma informed providers, which ultimately will impact more youth out there. Awesome. Great summation, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) all those free books. Uh, Let's, if we, if we can kind of dial in uh, and, and get specific about what you mean by you kind of in this new book, it seems like you break down some myths. You talked about, you know, understanding that or realizing that, you know, uh, mindfulness isn't this silver bullet in a sense. And, but I want to go there, but before we do, one of the things that, um, you know, I want to say to our listeners that I really like about you and admire about you is your, the, the, your genuineness that you bring to this work, your, your openness, your kind of, I don't know, fearlessness in a sense of saying, this is who I am mm-hmm. and really using that uh, in the work you do with this population. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, Why is that important? Why is that important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, as, as probably a lot of your listeners know at this point and probably Many of the, the the speakers, you know, the pioneers that have come on, we know that kind of like base level trauma informed care means helping develop a sense of safety with the folks that you're working with. And how do you do that? There's many ways to do that. And one of the things, you know, this applies to all people, but particularly with teenagers, with adolescents going through this transition is it's to be authentic, to be yourself, and to practice skillful self-disclosure when appropriate. Because what that does is it humanizes me. And when it humanizes me, it makes them trust me a little bit more. And that's what creates that safety and that predictability in the relationship, which then, of course, leads to them being more receptive to to mindfulness, to whatever intervention I have to offer, and that leads to better treatment outcome. And then, of course, the thing on top of that is by me doing that, by me uh, allowing myself to practice authenticity, to to be fully me. Of course, these are professional contexts, so I'm always a professional, right? But I'm still a human being within that profession within that professional context. Um, that helps me continuously align with my purpose, which is, you know, is this my heart work? Is this, um, am I doing what I feel like my purpose is on this planet? And by being authentic, I can continuously say, yes, I am, because I'm able to show up as fully me. I'm able to be that therapist to youth. I'm able to be that, that educator, that mentor at times, depending on the context. Um, and the, the last layer I'll speak to is that with youth, Um, particularly teenagers, you know, this isn't completely across the board, but in my anecdotal experience and my research, a lot of them are looking for that from the adults in their lives. They're looking for Mm -hmm. somebody to keep it real, who can be authentic, who can show them a model of what it means to, to, you know, in my case, be a man or to be an adult or, or um, to be that person who can mentor them and show them the way. 
And that happens when you show up authentically over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And although some youth may not, you know, admit that consciously or talk about that, the, the fact of the matter is there's a deficit of that in our society. Most adults in their lives are not doing that. You got teachers who are telling them what to do or probation officers with this population or judges literally judging them based, judging the character based on things they may have done. Sometimes parents acting that way. Sometimes, unfortunately, even therapists acting that way. So when you do that, when I do that and I practice authenticity over and over and over again, of course, within the realm of being a human being, like, you know, I have bad days too, right? Um, It, to me, it, it really provides this socio-culturally corrective experience where they can see me. Of course, there's always a power dynamic, but they can see me as that human being and I can see them as that human being. And again, it all goes back to them trusting me more, uh, 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 enhancing the alliance and the therapeutic relationship, and then them being just more open to whatever it is I have to offer, which in this case is trauma-informed mindfulness or, or a particular psychotherapy intervention. And that just leads to better growth and outcome for them. Yeah. Yeah, man. I love that. And then I love that topic too. I mean, for me, that's the gold. Um, and it's really why I'm doing this podcast. Yeah. So let's, let's bring it back to this, to your new work here and let's kind of dial in and talk to our listeners about what it looks like to deliver this type of, of, of treatment that you're talking about. Obviously, uh, that's a broad question, but share with us, Sam, maybe pull something out from the book or, or whatnot. One of the things before, <laughs> there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Well, as I was going through the book, there was a paragraph where you talked about um, you were you were kind of dealing with a psychiatrist who had looked through this chart of this guy and was was not looking through the trauma informed lens. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was talking about a situation as many of us who are clinicians have, where you're working in an interdisciplinary team environment. Um, and a psychiatrist essentially had diagnosed this patient I was working with, with conduct disorder. And, you know, in my opinion, that's a really heavy diagnosis to put on somebody, uh, particularly when you're not doing a full, like, psychosocial history. And in my opinion, in working with this young person, a lot of the manifestations of that conduct disorder, you know, the behavioral um, outbursts, the violence, the um, the oppositionalness, things like that. Really, because I worked with this particular client very closely, um, to me, my conceptual framework and my kind of case conceptual map, I guess you can say, was that a lot of that was coming from trauma and just the, the deep violence and deep trauma that this young person had experienced in their lives. Um, and so, you know, there was that tension there where it was like, you know, the, the, there was one person on the team just looking at the symptoms in a vacuum without contextualizing it. And then there was me trying to look at the real background history of what was going on. And again, and, and that's one of the things that I think is another, at least on the clinical side for psychologists and marriage and family therapists and social workers and licensed professionals, it's like we are trained to look at the context of what's going on. And if you don't do that, then I would argue you're not looking at it through a trauma-informed lens. Not that every symptom comes from trauma. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement. But 
particularly with this client, it, it, it really felt like it did based on all my training, based on my work with this young person, based on my research. And, you know, again, I, I just, in, in my opinion, I think the, the diagnosis of conduct disorder um, just holds a lot of weight to it because as you know, and probably as a lot of your listeners know, that tends to transform from a, from a, a person who's under 18 to when they traverse into adulthood to antisocial personality disorder, which is also a very heavy diagnosis, you know? Right. Um, so not looking at those contextual factors, that's why I wanted to write about that experience in the book. It's like we're, we're caught in these scenarios all the time in these interdisciplinary teams where we may differ, have a difference of opinion and a difference of expertise with somebody we're working with. And what do we do? How do we deal with that? You know, how do I still come at it from a place of integrity and still try to build that relationship with the psychiatrist in that situation to, you know, give them my clinical expertise and so on and so forth so that we can provide the best care uh, for this young person. So That's book four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, sorry for that digression there, but um, this is great stuff. So let's 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 talk about specifically pick something out of the book and yeah. and talk about what it looks like, how you worked with it, etc. Sure. I mean, I think you know the thing that I find myself really just saying over and over again in my trainings and public lectures and things like that is that the really the base of all of this uh, of youth work in general i i would even contend of psychotherapy and just mentoring and relationships in general is is that therapeutic alliance that relationship so i always lean with that first i'm never like you know gonna meet somebody the first time i gonna the first time i meet somebody gonna go in there and push mindfulness on them super hardcore right like i want to build that relationship i want to build that sense of rapport that sense of safety um you know and then as they get to know me a little bit sometimes that happens in a session sometimes that happens in five or ten sessions it just kind of depends then that's when i talk about how mindfulness has impacted me my personal life uh, talk with them about how the, the intervention may impact them. And then based on, and, and since they trust me, they're a little bit more open to it, right? They take that courageous step. Yeah, I'll practice a mindfulness meditation with you. Uh, and then when they do that, there's a chance for them to actually have a direct experience of it. And they can see how it can be helpful to them. Um, and, and, and I think the, the trauma-informed part of this is based on their particular set of trauma adaptations and manifestations. That's when I try to figure out, you know, how I'm going to present this in a way that doesn't re-trigger them, um, that doesn't, you know, shut them down in any way. And for some youth, that may be, uh, you know, as you know, based on how diverse trauma manifestations come up, like for some youth, that may not be doing formal mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, that may be doing informal mindfulness activities and helping them build kind of snippets of awareness over time to the point where in the future, maybe one of our treatment paths or treatment goals is that they can do a formal mindfulness meditation for even just one, two, three minutes. Or it may be working with somebody who can do, who can formally meditate, but they can only meditate for two minutes before they start to get really dysregulated because it brings up memories of trauma or just for whatever reason they get triggered. It, it, you know, it may be pausing on that, working with them to help expand that window of tolerance so that they can go inward and experience uh, 
that inner subjective without that that huge dysregulated experience. All right. So I, I think I have a, an idea of what you're talking about here, but let's let's get a little more specific. You said, you know, depending on uh, a client's background, you're going to adjust where you're coming from. Let's get specific here. What what would that look like? Someone walks in. Yeah. So one of the maybe I can just talk about one of the vignettes from the from the book. Um, you know, I remember working with this young person in a school-based setting. Um, this I was working at a school in Oakland that was, um, they, we call them like community schools now, a lot of probation youth, just kind of like alternative to, I guess you would say, regular high school. And, you know, a lot of folks in that community with a lot of trauma. So anyways, I was working with this young person who had a, a sexual assault history, unfortunately. And um, we had a good relationship. We had a good rapport. And this person was open to doing mindfulness and things like that because he trusted me, like I said. But one of the things that was very difficult was anytime this person would close their eyes, they would get triggered. And so rather than trying to force what I like to call like meditation logistics on this person, like Mm -hmm. this is how we meditate. We need to sit up straight. We need to close our eyes, right? Because that only leads to further impact at at best and dysregulation and re-triggering of trauma at worst, right? Um, I used a well-known, I'm sure you've talked about it or had guests talked about them here, a well-known kind of trauma-informed technique of orienting where I help this person orient, orient to their time and place around the room, look around the room, tell me a couple things you see, a couple things you hear, a couple things you can, you can feel right now to get them to not trigger out of that window of tolerance and really be able to have a sustained awareness in the present moment all while, of course, making it safe enough with this with this person to say, look, at any time we can step out of this, this is about me and you right now. This technique, this is something we can do or we cannot do and making it safe for them to come out of it, which I talk about in the book, it, that happened from time to time. And so, you know, I didn't want to push it too much. I didn't want to say we have to do this or anything like that. Uh, that's a lot of what trauma-informed mindfulness is about. It's about being a adaptable in the present moment to the individual or the group or the, the 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 people that you're working with and being able to come out of it because their safety you know is number one obviously mm-hmm. and so you know this was a this was a a case that you know a, a young person that i worked with where at first because of the particular past with sexual assault and the the traumatic adaptation to hypo arouse to to dissociate to detach um it took a long time for them to feel comfortable enough to just even be present and have that sustained awareness for even a minute or two. But what was amazing and extremely transformative is like, you know, because you can go down that thought path of a clinician of, I shouldn't do this because it's triggering to them. Therefore I'm never going to do it. And in, in some cases that's what you got to do. But in, in this case there, this person had an actual want and desire to progress down that mindful path and learn this ability because they knew it was going to be so transformational down the line because obviously what I'm trying to do as a therapist is build capacity so that they can, you know, traverse life without having a therapist, you know? And so because of that, we were able to kind of stay in this and come back to it every once in a while, 
and they develop their capacity to the point where by the end of our relationship, they could sit down, formally meditate, and even close their eyes, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that was a huge win because, um, as you know, and as your listeners and the other pioneers, you know, the, the folks who've come on here, I'm not saying I'm a pioneer, just I know you Leonard <laughs> Koch and some of those big, big dogs. Um, you know, as you know, it's like, that in and of itself, sitting silently, closing your eyes, can be enough to trigger somebody into that chaotic internal subjective experience that is produced by trauma. You know, mm-hmm. so that's one example of of how you can use it, and and how mindfulness is is very much more than formal mindfulness meditation. And there's all these kind of impacts to awareness of the present moment with a non-reactive attitude, which is how, which is the base level of how I define mindfulness. And how does that, or how did that client feel that this was helping her or going to help her? Mainly uh, emotional regulation. Okay. Uh, This person, uh, um, struggled with that at times. I talked about kind of the detached dissociation that happened, that happened with this client. Um, and that was a very real thing. Um, and then just also a lot of mood swings as well. Um, understandably so given, given the tremendous traumatic history that this person had been through. And so in this person's mind, it was really like, you know, when I, when I had, practice my skillful self-disclosure, which again, that's, I talk about my experiences when I feel like it's appropriate and in the best interest of the client. That was like me saying, you know, I'm not trying to force this on you or anything like that, but I got to just tell you for me, this is how this practice has like completely transformed my life. And I don't know if it'll do the same thing for you, but it might. And that's Mm -hmm. when that person was like, you know what, maybe because of these mood swings and this sometimes how I just completely zone out and basically said dissociated without, um, without saying those, that exact term, um, that, that was like the impact of intention and motivation to do it, mm. to, to at least try it out. What I really love as I'm listening to you talk is, and it, you know, everything's your, everything that's coming out of your mouth is there's so many layers to everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about building a relationship. Well, that in and of itself is is a book and being authentic. And that in and of itself has so many, uh, so much richness to it, you know, that we can talk more and more about each of those things. And having the wherewithal to, uh, you know, understand, well, as, as you're working with this client, as a clinician in the room, having to wherewithal to, to say, this might be too triggering or that might be tr- too triggering. Let me modulate and adapt and suggest this or not suggest that. That in and of itself is pretty heavy too. I mean, that takes some, some weight and some work and some experience also. Um, so what you're seeing, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I think what you're doing, Sam, it has so much richness to it. And so many uh, of my listeners, I know this can benefit from, from what you have to say and what you have to, to offer to everybody. So I think it's awesome. 
Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so let me just remind everyone that I'm speaking with Dr. Uh, Himmelstein. He is the CEO of the Center for Adolescent Studies. His new book out by Norton is Trauma-Informed Mindfulness with Teens, A Guide for Mental Health Professionals. We'll have this linked up at the show notes here at uh, thetraumatherapistpodcast.com. Um, all right. So what's your hope for, for this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would really love for this to, I mean, I think the purpose is to serve ultimately young people, but through the medium of the professionals that work with them to help, um, what's the word I'm looking for, I guess, to help share the transformative practice of mindfulness and, and really self-awareness generally, but to do it in a trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive, culturally humble way, relationship-oriented way, mm -hmm. uh, so that, you know, there's more than just, it's much more than just this technique. It's this relationship. It's this way of being. It's this way of looking inward and... Um, aligning with and realizing that human beingness and that human becomingness that every individual is going through. So I really, I envision that mentor, that educator, especially those mental health professionals, those therapists working with your teenage and young adult clients, um, doing that, really realizing that relationship and realizing the, the transformative practice of mindfulness, because I know how powerful it can be from my own personal experience and from the, from the clients that I've worked with over my career. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So Sam, what's uh, the best way for people to get in contact with you? Uh, best way to get in contact is just through the website. Either if you go to center for there's a bunch of email captures or forms you could submit. Also email is great. Sam at center for center for is probably the best direct way to get in touch with me. Okay. Okay. I'll have those links up again as a show notes page. And obviously we'll have your books linked up, but in terms of uh, other go-to book recommendations, something that whether trauma related or not, what would you yeah. recommend? Yeah, no, I, I have two really good books that I love to recommend. The first is more towards those providers who do work with trauma impacted youth one of my all-time favorites, I know you've interviewed him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think is one of the best books out there on childhood trauma. Like I really, it's, it's the, one of the reasons why I really love it is it's very easy to read. Uh, it's just kind of presented in plain English. And I just think Bruce Perry is one of those pioneers who... Um, does you know i'm aligned very very much what's what's in my book is aligned with his way of thinking and practicing so that's one of them and if it, it no matter who you work with even if you work with adults i think that's really good but especially if you work with young people the other book which i just really love and it has to do with trauma but really can just traverse against many age, age ranges and um uh, professions is trauma stewardship and the thing that I love about trauma stewardship is she has this concept in there that she talks about called trauma mastery. And it's about how people, when they go through things, they 
sometimes inevitably come back to that and master it in a way um, that gives them more life purpose. Like for example, with me, um, being a troubled adolescent, going through the juvenile justice system, and then ultimately coming back and mastering that narrative in my life by giving back to it, by becoming a professional in it. And what I love about that concept is it gives you the ability to contemplate, like, why am I doing what I do? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I in this profession? Why am I working with this particular population? Am I in some way uh, healing a narrative or healing an experience that came from my past? And if the answer is yes, you have the opportunity to do that and kind of make yourself whole again, which leads to deeper meaning, deeper life purpose, which obviously leads to being happier, to showing up as your full best self in the work that mm -hmm. you do, which means those people you work with get your full best self and benefit even more. You know, so I love that book. Um, yeah. and, I, and I just think it's a great, I think it's a great self-care book no matter what, but particularly for people who, who see trauma or work with trauma professionally. Awesome. So uh, once again, that's um, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog by Bruce Perry and Trauma Stewardship by Laura Benjanut Lipsky, both uh, previous guests on this podcast. So, all right, Sam, um, man, thanks so much for, for coming on again. Dude, you're doing it. Uh, it's really, honestly, it's inspiring to, to listen to you talk and uh, congratulations on the book again. Thank you so much, man. Honored to be here. Really happy to be back. And I'll let you know when that fourth, fifth, and sixth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Happy New Year. Foundation for Human Enrichment, DBA, Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute, is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to resolving trauma worldwide by providing professional training and education in somatic experiencing. It was founded by Dr. Peter Levine, author of Waking the Tiger, who developed somatic experiencing based on explorations of how animals deal with threat and traumatic experiences on a daily basis. Learn more about somatic experiencing and the SE professional training at W www.traumahealing.org. That's www.traumahealing.org. All right, guys, I want to welcome back Talkspace as a sponsor to the podcast. You know, we all have something we want to change about ourselves, whether it's spending too much time on social media or wanting to start a new hobby. But if you're like me, like most people, taking action can feel almost impossible without the right support. Talkspace Online Therapy is the most convenient and affordable way to make lasting change in your life with the support of a licensed therapist. Send your licensed therapist texts, audio, picture, or video messages from your phone or computer whenever you need to, even if it's on the way to work. You don't have to make appointments or deal with extra commutes. Everything happens within Talkspace's secure platform all on your schedule. Talkspace matches you with a licensed therapist based on your needs and preferences. They have thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties. So if you have something very specific you want to work on, they will find someone right for you. Once you're matched, you can begin therapy that very same day. The bottom line is that life can be hard, and Talkspace wants to make sure more of us get the support we need at a price we can afford. As a listener of this podcast, you can get $100 off your first month on Talkspace. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code TRAUMATHERAPIST to get $100 off your first month and show your support for this podcast. Once again, go to Talkspace.com and use the code TRAUMATHERAPIST.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 